0: Psalm 85. Simeon.
1: So um, you were on verse 10, and I had a question about how you equated faithfulness and truth because you interchanged those words once, and I was curious what your thought process on that was.
0: Well, the, the basic notion of faithfulness is dependable, reliable, and so as it relates to action, we get the notion of a faithful servant. But if someone's words are faithful and dependable, it starts moving in the direction of truth. And that's so when that adjective is using to describe God, um, va- vamer, I think it's the Hebrew, um, it can be rendered true or truthful. He's dependable. He's reliable. And as, as you take that in a relationship to his speech, you get the notions of truth coming in. And as you get it towards action, you get more of the faithfulness idea. And so, does anyone have the New American Standard? I think the New American Standard translates it truth there. Am I right? Anybody? Got the NASB? Verse 10. Steadfast love and truth meet. Loving kindness and truth, right. So they're just taking the same Hebrew concept, vamer, and it's the same pairing, though. However you translate it, what, the point I was trying to make is it's the same pairing that shows up in Exodus 34, i I'm the Lord, the Lord abounding, in chesed vamer, steadfast love, loyal love, God, whatever you want to use for that term, um, and truthfulness or faithfulness. And then I'm trying to say that I think, is what John's getting to when he sums up. So when you think in John 1, 14, we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a lot of adjectives or substantives you could put in there to describe the glory of the Son. He is um, obedient. He is uh, sacrificial. He is holy. He, you know, but he picks he's full of grace and truth. And Carson argues, I didn't have time to show my math up there and I don't even have time right now to fully show my math. But Carson DA Carson argues strongly and I think quite compellingly that in that section of John, there's about a dozen or more connections to Exodus thirty four. The most clearly in John one, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of the Father, he has translated him. When Moses asks to see God's glory, the first answer he gets is you can't see my glory and live but I will make all my goodness pass by you. And then he declares his name. And so there's one of the links. No one can see God at any time, but we've seen the glory of the only begotten of the Father in Christ, full of, and then he uses, uh, in other words, a, a reasonable translation of the Hebrew chesed, if i would be grace and truth. That would be a reasonable translation. And so it's likely, I think very likely, that that is what John is trying to link with when he says, we've beheld his glory. It's the same glory Moses saw on the mountain. It's that same God who's full of steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth. That, that's the notion that I'm trying to connect. But as regards to truth, it's just fidelity in regards to speech as opposed to regard to action. Um, good question. Other questions? Oh! Oh! Wanda Cowan.
1: Well, I I've always thought, like you said, that um, like if I need a word from God, He's always been faithful in my life to bring a scripture to remembrance for me. And I've heard other pastors say, like um, MacArthur, that you you know that's where you hear God's voice. Right. But we have family that's in the mission field, and they say they audibly hear. God tell them things, and I I don't like it that I doubt them on that. So I just wondered if you could kind of address that.
0: Well, what I would say, you may not like my answer on this one. Um, we don't want to put God in a box. God can, and he has spoken to him. He spoke to Abraham, right? God has not said he won't do that. So if God has said he won't do something, we say he won't do that. So God could do that. That does not appear and everything we get from Scripture, that is not his normal means of communicating. Um, If God chooses to speak to you, I'm sure he could do it in a way that is compelling and that you will have no doubt. What I get, the instructions I get to follow are not to look for that, not to wait for that, not to seek that, but rather to read the word he's given. So I wouldn't call someone a liar. There'd be all sorts of implications like, okay, are we going to get the next book of the Bible then? the revelation of God to Tom Jones or whatever you want to, whoever it is. Um, Because if God's speaking, I don't ever see God speaking in, in varying degrees of authority, whether it's God audibly speaking, whether it's God sending a prophet, whether it's God writing his word at every step. And I'd go to great lengths to argue. He's never sort of authoritative. So if God is audibly speaking to someone, I don't know why we're not writing the 67th book of the Bible. I mean, so that'd be one of the questions I want to ask them. Like, are, are you claiming that level? Are you are you that confident? Now, if they are, I guess we can talk to them. But most people I know who want to make those claims that they hear God talking will back down at that step and say, no, no, I'm not claiming this is Scripture. I'm just, okay, then what is it? And and I think you're going to be really hard-pressed arguing or demonstrating in the Bible that God's got a sort of authoritative word. I, I, I see, like, heaven and earth passing away his word, enduring level of authority, or it's vapor. Um, or maybe I do think the Holy Spirit moves on our hearts. We get convicted of sin by. Ex, by ex, sometimes because we don't want to be charismatic, we get so nervous about feelings that I think we can, we can do injustice there. Certainly, the Holy Spirit convicts of guilt and sin through feelings. He, he does through His word as well, but I don't think anyone's going to argue that a feeling of unease, a feeling of guilt, can be the Spirit working on a heart to convict of sin. So I, I don't want to limit the spirits' movement and work, but if someone's saying I'm hearing words from God, I don't see how it could be anything less than a th- this authoritative. And then my next point would be: if God's giving those words, please share them with us.
1: It's in response to direct questions like, "Where are we to serve?" Now they're in Samoa or something like that. Okay. Because he put that. He that's
0: what he said. Okay.
1: And I just am like, oh golly, I don't know that I believe that, and I don't. I feel bad that I don't.
0: Right, and and that's where what people mean and asking them questions comes out. Because if you want to know where to serve, and you and your wife come to agreement, like just both of us on our hearts has been this country, and we really Mm -hmm. see in that perhaps the hand of God at work. I'd be comfortable with all that language, and if you summarize that by God told us to go to Somalia, now I. What do you mean? And if what you meant is, well, we prayed about it. And both of us, that was just burning on our hearts. Both of us had a, we, we were burdened for it. And we see in that the hand of God. Like, in one sense, as the elders meet and, and we come to one mind, I see God working and, t- and speaking and leading through speaking, r- revealing his will through that. When all of the elders on the same page on a matter, like, That seems to be the spirit at work, right? When we unanimously this is one of the things I think is really cool about our church. We can have differing opinions on the color of the chairs or whatever, but the last time we updated our statement of faith and we added the the section on marriage and sexuality was absolutely unanimous. And again, I see, like, isn't that cool? That seems to be a work of the spirit that we are of one mind and full accord in this matter. So all those things I can see God at work in, It all depends what people mean by it. But if you're going to really stick with your guns, I hear audible voices and words. Okay, there is precedent. That's happened in the Bible before. I think you need to write it down and share it it to the rest of us. You know what I mean? Now, usually they'll back down at that point. And that's where I'm going to say, look, I, I don't think you can have it both ways. I don't think you can claim real speech and words from God and not have it be equal to this, even if it's something that seems banal, something unimportant. There, there's things in the Bible about God, someone asked of the Lord, and he said, go here and go there. Like, I can show you verses where David inquires, should we go up to this city? Should we go up and make war over here? Like, So I'm, I'm cool with God told the, the the so-and-sos to go to the Philippines. That's cool. Like, If that really is what God said, I would like it. Right? Usually, they're going to back down at that point. Usually. If they don't, we can go there. But I'm, I'm with you as regards to being uneasy because I, I don't know. I, I, when I first got saved, we had some friends, dear friends of mine, who um, would get words from God and such. They, they were in a more charismatic background. And I used to go to their house, and they're still friends of mine. I love them to death. Um, and we had one or two conversations. And now they'll say things more like, at least to me, I think I have something from God. And I'm like, that really helps me out a lot. That really, when you say, I've got a word from the Lord from you, I'm ready to like pick up a stone or start writing in the back of my Bible. I, I don't know how to do some middle ground position, okay. you know, and yeah. <laughs> so, so that, that's me. But without further details, that's about as far as I can go with that. Okay, thank um, you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Elsa. I think we
1: must also be careful not to make certain things the standard. If you um, listen to a lot of Muslims from the Middle East who grew up there, never had a Bible, Hmm. Bible not available, nothing, and Christ came to them in a vision... Why can God not work that way there? That doesn't mean he's going to do that with yeah. me because we've got churches, we've got Bibles, we've got freedom here to yeah. serve him. But if it's a place that's totally closed off to the gospel, he can do whatever he wants, right?
0: right? right. Yeah, He's got To
1: reveal himself to people.
0: Yeah. Well, oh, this, yeah. is, this is where, what's the, I was making this expression right, the ordinary means of grace. There we go. What we have at the ordinary, and by ordinary, we're making a distinction between God's regular, normal activity and God's unusual activity. The ordinary means of grace are His word, prayer, gathering his people, hearing his word read and explained. Can God send visions And Jim, Sure he can. He's God. He's he's not a tame lion, to use Lewis's phrase. Should we go seeking it? No, what he's shown us we should do is be reading, rereading, speaking his word to each other, dwelling on his word, acting upon his word, and let God do as he sees fit. The the problem can be this is old. I mean, the newest parts of this book are 2,000 years old. And fresh words get really exciting. And if I could just have something directed... But everything we see programmatically, everything we see in pattern, is to focus on this. And if God wants to do something, he certainly can. Um, And I'm I'm not going to try to limit what he can do. Now, if he does, at that point, I think we need to test all things. And I've yet to see anything credibly, remotely begin to hold up. But... Certainly he can. We hear stories, like you said, about Muslims, and some of them sound credible, and who knows? Perhaps that's what God's up to. It doesn't change what we ought to be. This is where my concern comes in with missions organizations. You'll see missionaries, they'll think God's doing this, or maybe he is. Now let's just start praying for God to send these dreams. No, he gave us our marching orders, and if he wants to do something different alongside of that, that's his prerogative. We just need to be faithful and obedient the danger is to see God doing something different. Okay, let's stop doing what he told us to do and join him in the dreams thing. And missions becomes praying that Muslims have dreams. No, missions is them going and being sent and speaking the words and how they believe unless they hear and how they hear unless one is. That's missions. And if God wants to send dreams, that's his prerogative. And awesome. We, we just need to be found faithful doing what he told us to do. Um, so, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. Next, anybody else? Okay, let me, let me, I'm going to follow into my rabbit trails. Can we go to Ezekiel 36? Ezekiel 36. I didn't have much time, well, I, I had the same amount of time you all did. I didn't spend my time in this point. Um, well, I had the same 45 minutes or so you guys had, so, you yeah. know, um, about the connections to the land, but one of the things that I, I find is is fascinating is there's two big, massive New Covenant passages in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 34 or 31? Hold on. Jeremiah 31. Yeah. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Um, so when Jesus talks about the cup of the New Covenant, my blood, he's directly referencing Jeremiah 31. When Jesus talks about being born of the spirit and water, he's talking about Ezekiel 36. These are the two big new covenant passages. And both of them unite and join the promises of spiritual salvation with the land of Israel and its restoration. Uh, Let me just show you that. This is why, and we can be tempted modernly to think of the focus on the land. And of course, Psalm 85 says in verse 12, Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. And we can be tempted to do one of two things. We can either um, spiritualize it. The land giving what's good is the, the spiritual crop of the gospel bearing fruit. And you can preach this in churches and people will say, mm, amen. When an Israelite talks about the land, they're talking about the land that God gave to Abraham. There's no, there's no spiritual the land. It's really clear. The other thing we can do is just sort of ignore it or be embarrassed about it because next to salvation and forgiveness of sins, crop fertility seems kind of menial, small, and unimportant. And you just don't get that in the Bible. The the Old Testament, we'll read Ezekiel 36, right? Okay, verse 16. um, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land. They defiled it by their ways and their deeds, their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it, I scattered them among the nations. And they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord. And that they had to go out of the land. But I concerned for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations with which they came. So we're dealing with the exile to Babylon, and God says he's going to restore them. He's doing it for his name's sake, not even because this remnant in Babylon is particularly repentant, but lest the foreigners say, <laughs> These are the Lord's people, and look at them all scattered. So he says, uh, verse 21 Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, a house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now the reason I started back this early is when God scattered them from the land, it's not a spiritual scattering. It's a geopolitical scattering. A geopolitical nation... Babylon, came in, mounted a real siege on a real city, and took them into captivity to real foreign lands. No one disagrees about that, that the Bible's clear on that. Israel is taken captive to other lands. So when God, in the same passage, talks about regathering them, I want to cry foul and drop a flag. That's a sports thing, right, Greg? I'm going to drop a flag when someone says, all of a sudden, this is Spiritual. This is the church. Okay, let's keep going. Um, verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And then here's where John 3 being born again of the Spirit and water, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, there I think is what Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about in John 3. There's what we call the new covenant, being born again. I think all of that is... is is is. Referencing Ezekiel 36. Keep reading. That's glorious. That's wonderful. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. What pray tell land is that? Again, no dispute. The land God gave to Israel's fathers is mapped out. You can read its boundaries in the book of Joshua. You can read it when God speaks with Abraham. Abraham. This is a very particular land. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. There's no embarrassment here, going straight from a new heart and a new spirit and cleansed sins to crop abundance and restoration in the land. I will make the fruit of the trees and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember evil ways and your deeds. And we're not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Is it not for this? It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God: On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste place to be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by, and they will say, "This land." That was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and the desolate and ruined cities now fortified and inhabited, then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it. And in one prophecy and in one declaration we get the new birth, the new heart, the new spirit, the cleansing, and a very particular land being restored, fertile, and secure. And I just want to cry foul if you want to grab hold of the first part and either downplay and ignore or spiritualize the second part. Which is why, if you go back to Psalm 85, we can talk about you forgave their sins and you covered their iniquities and the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Because tied with these promises of a new covenant and a restoration and steadfast love and faithfulness meeting and righteousness and peace kissing, it, it, tied in with those promises is the restoration of the land of Israel, um, which we, we, by being pre-millennial are waiting this pre or pre or before that millennial period where Christ will do that on earth um, anyway didn't didn't go into that fully in the message questions on that or thoughts on that because yes, all the way in the back Alex palmquist Pequity so if that's yes thank you i'm going um, hear ba- I'm going to hear back from Mike <coughs> on that one let's go um, if that's true and that's which i i would agree you know it's good it's the people of israel yes does the new covenant then in its context just refer to the people of israel in terms of this the new heart and the new spirit being put within them in the first instance yes okay. so we get a very clear shift in jesus' ministries in matthew most explicitly but we saw it in luke your house is left desolate um, and Jesus says, I, I need to go to the... Remember the Seraphonician woman who is coming, and it's not good for the dogs to eat the children's food? She says, yes, but even the dogs get the scraps, and he, he heals her. Jesus clearly has a priority for Israel. He's going to Israel first, and Paul shares that same priority. Um, salvation to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So this this message, this offer, comes to Israel first. There's no debate about that. I mean, that's explicitly clear in multiple texts. Um, Jesus does not travel all over the Middle East like Paul does. Um, he does have some notable ministry in Gentile territory in the Diacop, in the uh, Deoc- Sorry, no, the Deca- Decapolis. He crosses the Sea of Galilee and he goes over and the, the, the uh, demon-possessed man in the tombs. And he does go to the Samaritan village in John 4. But the, the overwhelming majority of Jesus' ministry is in and to the people of Israel. And then when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, when their rejection of him is, is resolute and set, and he announces that, he says in Matthew, let me go, let's go to Matthew 26, I want to say. Um... Um, nope, nope. Matthew, back a little further. Um, the kingdom of God will go to a nation bearing its fruit. Um, what is it? Sorry, where? Twenty-three thirty-seven. Twenty-three thirty. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. No, 23, 23, oh, I'm in the 22, you are quite, yeah, there you go, exactly, thank you. So this is Matthew 23, this is late in Jesus' ministry, um, oh, Jerusalem, this is parallel, we saw this in Luke, we went through Luke, and Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, um, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house, his house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm looking even for more explicitly saying, The kingdom of God will go to a nation bearing its fruit. Let me just look up bearing fruit in the Gospels. It'll be probably the fastest. That's exactly what we're talking about. He's even more explicit in Matthew. Um, fruit, Matthew. Let's just do fruit in Matthew. There cannot be a ton of those. Okay, um, um, hold on. Awkward silence, awkward silence. Um, hold on. Didn't pop up quickly. Hmm. It's right in here. Hold on. This is the problem of taking fly questions. Um, I didn't have this thing noted down. It's here. I will find it. It's um, 21:43. Hold on. Let me see.: Yes. Deb. 20 points. Oh, OK. Linda, 25 points. When you get 50, you can get a cup of coffee. Okay. Um, 21, 43. Okay. Well, actually, go back to 42. Jesus said to them, you have never heard, read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, and the Greek word for people is ethnos, a different people. That's that's the key. Uh, If you want to use the Hebrew, the goyim, right? Um, Given to a people producing its fruit. And Paul makes it clear that there is a shift in the gospel going to the Gentiles. So, Alex, back to your question. Go to to Romans 11. Um, Paul deals with this probably most clearly there. We are being offered what was originally offered to Israel. And Paul's whole argument in Romans 11 is their stumbling led to the gospel going to all peoples. What will then their future restoration do but life from the dead? In other words, Paul's going to make a very Jewish form of argument from the lesser to the greater. If Israel tripping up on their Messiah led to the gospel going out to the nations, then what will happen? And the answer is assumed to be something far greater when Israel gets it. So Paul's talking about a future repentance and believing of Israel. And in Romans 11, we get our place in this. Um, so, ooh, verse 11. 11. 11, So I ask, did they, and the, the they is Israel. He's been dealing in Romans 9, 10, and 11 with the question of Israel's rejection of the gospel and how to make sense of that. Because he ended Romans 8 with these promises. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate you. Neither height nor depth nor breadth. Nothing can separate you. And I think he assumes someone going, "Yeah, yeah, Paul, but didn't God make similar promises to Israel? And it sure looks like they're separate. And so he comes in to answer it. But he does this through a series of rhetorical questions. And 1111 is one of the last ones. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So there's the apostolic logic. The gospel went out to the Gentiles because Israel stumbled and and rejected the Messiah. Um, Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Paul still has in view their full inclusion. Now I'm speaking to the Gentiles in so much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles and magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches are broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, I think the metaphor would be that we are grafted into the promises to Abraham. Uh, If we're grafted into those promises and being nourished, um, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You are being saved by Jewish promises and a Jewish messiah. You're being saved by, the, by, the, by Jewish scriptures and promises to Israel. Those promises are what are saving you. You're, you're sharing in their salvation. Um, don't become arrogant. Verse 19, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Look how important I am. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through your faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You could look at this and say, I must be very important if God wrapped me in and kicked down Israel, or you could draw the other conclusion, man, God does not take his people playing around very well, and he he kicked them off, and he cut them off for a time. Um, Verse 22, notice the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who are fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has power to graft them in again. For if they were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more, just like he says in verse verse 12, will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want to, to... I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening or a temporary hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. So on the one hand, the Jews are running around like like Paul before he became an apostle, trying to kill Christians. On the one hand, they're enemies of the gospel. On the other hand, they're beloved because of the fathers. For just as you were at that time disobedient to God, but now have have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, and the unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Let's take a detour then to Zechariah. Go two books before Matthew. Um, if he, Zechariah is... Malachi is right before Matthew. Malachi is four chapters, and it's tiny. Zechariah is 14 chapters. It's, if you just go to Matthew and turn a couple pages to the left, you'll be in Zechariah. Go to 12. We can see this happen. Um... Now, Zechariah is written. It's one of the books that has got a very, very precise time stamp for when it is written. And uh, chapter 1 tells us it's after the return from Babylon. Um, so we have Scripture written after the return from Babylon, specifically um, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Um, and so we got at least four books of the Bible devoted to the time after the return. And from that vantage point, Zechariah speaks of a future day of trouble for Israel. And he begins his oracle of chapter 12, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Um, And in the first nine verses, we read about a day... You'll notice the focus on a day. Verse 3, on that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people. Verse 4, on that day, declares the Lord, I'll strike every horse with panic. Uh, Verse 6, on that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot. Verse 8, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants. You get the focus. This This is about a particular day coming. And what is elsewhere known as the day of the Lord. Verse 9, on that day, I'll seek to destroy all the nations that come up against Jerusalem. So we've got us a day in the future when the nations of the world gather and surround Jerusalem. And it looks hopeless. It looks like they will be defeated. And then we read this amazing prophecy in Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and I love the the. Even there, okay? Are they looking at the Lord? Or are they looking at Him? Yes. On Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. In that twelfth hour, at the last moment, God will pour out His Spirit on the inhabitants of Israel and Jerusalem, and they will understand what they've done. They will look finally. Upon the one whom they pierced, and they will get it, and they will repent and mourn and be broken. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning from Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And we pick up this exact same story from a different vantage point in chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. So the focus of 12 is the national conversion and repentance. The focus of 14, same event, is God fighting for his people. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from among you will be divided in your midst. Now gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped, half the city shall go into exile. I mean, it'll look like they're defeated. The walls are breached. People are being taken in captivity. People are being despoiled. Verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east. By the way, little note, where did Jesus take off from when he ascended into heaven? And what do the angels say? Just as you saw him depart, you'll see him return. I One of those little lining ups that the, the return touchdown spot on planet Earth, the returning Lord, is the Mount of Olives. I just think that's... One of those precise things that lines up. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two. Take it up in verse six. On that day, there shall be no light and cold, and he fights for them. And verse nine, you get sort of the summary. And the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. The Lord will be one, and his name one. And then from 10 through 15, we read about the plagues and the defeat of the armies. And what this sets up, this defeat of the nation sets up, is a kingdom. Pick it up in 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the Lord, the King of hosts, the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And you just read the rest of the chapter, and it's about this kingdom that's set up um, where the the land is restored. So that, that, as I read my Bible, is what we're looking forward to in the future. Right now, the gospel is primarily going out to the nations, the Gentiles, There will come a day in the future, a day of great distress for Israel, when they will repent and convert, and when God will fight for them. Until they believe and repent, they should expect nothing but divine cursings. I mean, this is why I'm not a blind Zionist. Uh, I tend to think, from my reading of the news, and I'm not terribly well informed, but from my my brief perusal, I tend to think Israel has a just claim to the land. I tend to think that. I, I. don't remotely claim to be informed enough to make strong opinions. But claiming that they have a right to the land because of the promises, only if they're faithful. God promised he'd take them off the land if they're unfaithful. So an unbelieving Israel has no divine claim to that land. Uh, I tend to think they have a just claim to that land. But once they believe, once they look on him who they've pierced, God himself will go out and fight for them. God himself will go out and defeat their enemies. So right now we're living in this tension where Paul talks about, on the one hand, for the sake of the gospel, they're enemies. On the other hand, they're beloved. The, the analogy Paul uses in Romans 11 that I'll use is kind of like uh, a home-born son is kicked out due to his rebellion. And, and the father of the home invites a street urchin in and lets him live in the kid's room and play with his Xbox. And that's us. We're in, a, we're, in his, we're in the natural-born son's room, enjoying his benefits, enjoying his blessings. And Paul's saying, "I'm hoping it's going to make him envious. I'm hoping it's going to make him jealous. I hope one day, as he's walking out in the street, he looks in at the window of his old house and sees this dirty urchin who's been adopted sleeping in his bed. And he'll. But he also knows the father of the house intends one day to restore his son. That that's not the end of the story. So if you meet his son in the marketplace, you, there's a certain reverence—not reverence—a certain seriousness you don't, You're not just going to mess with him and kick him and throw dirt in his face. Like, that's the homeowner's son, and he's not done with him, so I'm going to keep my distance. Um, there's a certain amount of respect due, even, even as he's in rebellion to the master of the house. That's our position as the, the olive branches that are grafted on, uh, not to be arrogant and not to look down on the olive branches cut off and, and to look forward to a time when they will be grafted back in. Greg Sweet wants a microphone. He's got a microphone.
1: The um, promise of the land that God gave to Abraham, yes. was that not done on a unilateral? Yes. Well, you just said yes. that he said that the, they, the, you just said that Israelite lost their claim because of actions on their part. Right. But was it not a unilateral promise by God? Yes. Uh, so that they... Could not do anything to undo God's promise.
0: Yes and no. God God makes it clear He reserves the right to kick them off, and He tells them after. So His initial promise to Abraham is what you're saying by unilateral. Abraham does nothing. He is passive. He was asleep. Yes, he's asleep. He's passive in God's covenant he makes with them. And so God promises in the land, he promises a blessing, he promises a seed. And we talk about it being an unconditional covenant that that Abraham doesn't have to fulfill anything to receive that. Whereas the covenant at Sinai is bilateral. There's there's obligations of both parties. And so you get God saying the blessing and the curse. If you are faithful, if you obey, blessing, if you don't curse. All, All I'm saying is God has made it clear that their faithfulness, he reserves the right to rip them off the land. If they're unfaithful now, ultimately he will restore them. Ultimately it is their land in their unbelief. He's told them, I'll kick you off. It's my land. Ultimately it's my land. And so because he said those things while they remain unbelieving, we know it ultimately will be. They will receive their inheritance right now. He's kicked them out of the house is all is what I'm saying. So right now, I would not, under every situation, blindly back Israel regardless. I can conceive of a scenario where Israel is unjust, where Israel is in the wrong. Most of my readings of the news don't read that way, but I'm not blindly saying back Israel, whatever they do. But at the same time, I want to take them very seriously and, and very soberly, because they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And so I'm not mm-hmm. going to just sort of look down my nose at them either. I, I'm only cautioning against an absolute blind Zionism where Israel can do no wrong. Um, they can.
1: I heard somebody <laughs> explain this recently, not, not the yeah. they can do no wrong thing, but the ownership and occupation is two separate things. So you, okay. it can be your land, but you might not be... Occupying it for some other reason, uh, right. you know, g- which is perhaps God kicking them off out because of their bad bad actions, but it's right. still theirs and it's still going to be theirs, it,
0: which which you don't dispute at all, no, of course. Go to Leviticus twenty five. I found it. Sorry, this was one of like where's the last one I couldn't find quickly. I found this one quickly, so I'm, I'm happy. Leviticus twenty five twenty three. Why can't Israel sell the land in perpetuity? Is it perpetuity or perpetuity? Mom? Perpetuity? Okay. Why can't Israel sell the land in perpetuity? Because, according to Leviticus 25, 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers or sojourners with me. So the land is Israel's in a sense, insofar as they're with God. But God makes it clear ultimately it's my land. And I've made a covenant with you and I've joined myself with you. And so yeah, insofar as you're united and joined with me, this is your land. But if they But that's I think the basis where later God can say, since you've left me like a an adulterous wife, I'll kick you off the land because this is my land. But fair enough. Ownership and possession are separate things. Fair enough. There's a sense in which that land is Israel's. God's made promises. They're not fulfilled yet. They will be fulfilled. Absolutely. Does Israel at this very moment have any sort of claim, get off my land? I would say no, not in any divine sense right now. Um, They will in the future. That's the only distinction I'm trying to make. But fair fair enough, Greg. Fair enough. Um, Oh, Dean. Dean.
1: Back to your reference on Ezekiel thirty-six and, and land being an actual land. Yeah. Um, in in uh, previous to your reference, I was reading in one and four. If you could explain this, it says, "O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord." Again, that's in both one and four. Could you explain what word the, the mountains
0: are supposed to hear? Okay. Let me. So this is Ezekiel thirty-six. Yes, thirty-six one and four. Usually, I I would reserve the right to punt just because I'm not at any given moment ready to unpack every passage of the Old Testament. But usually, in my experience, when the land is called upon to be a witness, and we do get this in a number of places, it's it's the way of of solemnly testifying. Um, So even uh, Joshua, when he makes the clothes, not Joshua, I, I call... They put these pillars up, and I call them to be witnesses against you that you've sworn today to serve the Lord your God and so the land when the mountains are called upon as witness so when they when the people of Israel do the covenant ratification ceremony they get a group of them on mount nebo and a group of them on mount gerizim and from each of these mountains they recite the blessings and the cursings from each of the separate mountains and it's a way of sort of involving the land in the it's calling the land to be a witness to the event as well so let me look at verse 1 and now you a man Ezekiel 36 Um, Prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, because the enemy said, Aha, the ancient heights have become. Part of this is the promise itself is the restoration of the land. So I think in a sort of dramatic sense, he's speaking to the recipients of these promises. The land is going to get restored. And so he speaks to the land in a dramatic sense, demonstrating God's seriousness of doing it. In my preparation at the moment, that's as far as I can go. I can try to look at it some more and come back, but usually it's, it's a form, it's a, it's a f- f- dramatic form of intensification, um, just like the psalms, with the trees clapping for joy. I mean, we're not, we're not expecting the trees to grow phalanges and hands and stuff and start clapping. It's they're celebrating. Oh, mountains rejoice! Oh, heavens above the heavens rejoice! Mountains. You're going to be, so you picture Ezekiel come out, and it's dramatic, You're in front of, he's in front of people, and he's speaking, oh mountains, you will be restored, oh cities, you will be rebuilt. I mean, that's the picture, is what he's saying, and it's absolutely true, but I will look at that more, Dean, and get back to you. We are at time, God bless, thank you, and I'll stick around for a few if anyone has any more questions. God bless.